And so I think over the last you know nine, 10 years, I've probably done something like 70 angel investments. And it's somewhat motivated by returns, but usually not. Usually it's more around, I really like a founder. I'm really interested in a space. I'm interested in a new business model. Like I want to you know learn from it. Welcome back to the Vitalize podcast. On today's episode, we have Leo Polovitz, co-founder and general partner at Sousa Ventures. They are an early stage venture capital firm investing in businesses with strong compounding moats, such as proprietary data, economies of scale, and network effects. And Sousa Ventures is sector agnostic. They've made multiple investments in areas such as enterprise software, fintech, logistics, healthcare, consumer, as well as frontier tech. In this episode with Leo, we talk about a variety of topics, starting with a deep dive into one of their companies, PEX. We also talk about the importance of moats in startups, go through a few examples of these and why they look for them at Sousa Ventures, getting access to deals, something that is so very important, especially in this current landscape of venture investing. Talk about sourcing, vetting, and winning when it comes to hiring technical talent, because Leo has a lot of experience in that realm and finally we go through leo's angel investing he's done more than 70 angel investments we go through his experience talking about how he got started how it accelerates your learning and wrap things up with a discussion of what he's most excited about in the venture world i'm your host justin gordon the director of marketing here at vitalize you can support the show by going to ratethispodcast.com vitalize and without further ado here's leo polovitz co-founder general partner of susa ventures Leo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Justin. Really excited to be here. There is a lot to talk about with, with you and Sousa Ventures. And um, I think one thing that I, I want to start with is just a story around one of your investments. So I had talked to you pre, <laughs> pre-interview about this, but uh, one of your investments that you think is interesting, PEX. Talk to me about how that came about, if I'm saying it right, how that came about. Uh, and I'd love to dive deeper into that one. Sure. Uh, PEX is a really interesting story. It's I think it's either the only or one of the only investments we've ever made from a cold email. Uh, although it took it took a little while for that to happen. Um, and so the gist is the the founder emailed me. It was probably about six seven years ago now. And what he wanted to build was a better uh, copy detection platform for the media industry. And so when a creator uploads music or video or something like that, a lot of times it gets you know recopied. It's uploaded to other platforms, and then the creators like they're not making any more revenue from it. Um, and they're losing like access to their audience. And so Pex wanted to help with that. And so the idea made a lot of sense. Um, it's a problem that's you know usually solved by human beings these days or until Pex, which is kind of surprising, right? Like Beyonce uploads a music video and there's basically an army of people somewhere Googling for like Beyonce and Lemonade or whatever the song is called and just trying to find any copy they can. And, and so what Pex had is they had an algorithm that actually did this um, they did this detection algorithmically and like programmatically. Um, and they could even find things like if somebody tried to stretch the video or they added a watermark or, you know, like PEX was really good at detecting all of that. Um, but it was a really ambitious vision because they needed to work with all the major music labels and like movie studios. Um, they needed to get publishers on board. They had to like get access to all the videos uploaded to like YouTube and Facebook and all these huge platforms. And so when I first met the CEO, uh, his name's Rasti, um, you know, it was basically, I liked him. I liked the idea. It just felt like honestly too much for a seed stage company to pull off. And so we ended up passing. Um, and, but I kept in touch with Rasti. Like I, you know, he was really smart. He was funny. I, we became friends over time. And every couple of months he'd send me a new pitch deck and he'd be like, Hey, we're trying to raise a little bit more money. Like, what do you think about this, about this pitch deck? 
And so he did this for probably a year and a half or two. And after two years, it was like, wow, I could see the progress the company's made and all of these things that I wasn't sure a small company could do, like he's actually done. And he signed up the three major music studios. They built this technology platform that was monitoring all the videos uploaded to the web on major sites. Um, and it was really working and they had revenue. And I, I was kind of bummed. I was like, oh man, like, you know, we've been friends. I've been looking at your decks for a while. Now I'm like, I'm really excited about this business, but I feel like it's probably past us in terms of like the stage and the valuation. And when I told him that he actually, he, he was pretty generous. He said like, well, maybe we could make something work. And so we talked to him for a while. Um, you know, we got, I got my team uh, really excited about the business as well. And we actually ended up coming up with like kind of a price that made sense to everybody and that we could work with. And so we ended up investing in the seed round, I think it was about four years ago. Uh, the company has raised a, a series A and series B since then. And actually one of the really interesting things, um, maybe we could talk about it later on when we, if we talk about moats, but they have some really interesting moats in this business. And one of the more interesting ones that came up in the last uh, couple of years is the EU has started passing regulations around uh, what video publishers can do. And specifically, they want video publishers to like automatically check for copyright infringement before a video goes live, which is pretty different from today. Today, what happens is you post a video and, you know, if in a few weeks, like Warner Brothers decides it's copyrighted, <laughs> they tell YouTube, YouTube tells you there's like this whole process around the DMCA. Now, instead of being reactive, the EU wants it to be proactive, right? And because of the volume of video that, you know, Facebook and YouTube and all of these big sites have, you can't do that with humans at all. Like you need algorithms. And so PEX has, you know, I think the only algorithms that like are the only solution that does this well with code instead of people. Uh, and now there's like regulations that are basically going to require a solution like PEX. And so I think that's a really interesting development for the industry, for PEX, obviously, and also for PEX's moat over time. Um, and that's kind of where they are today. I do want to get into the moats, but one thing I want to go back to is, you know, seeing that and other investors listening on this, you passed initially on them. What would they have had to have had at that point? early on, we kind of first talked to them, more of the things you were looking for, for them to have, obviously you said there's a, really, a lot of challenges they have to do, but what was it that would have maybe helped you make the decision or, you know, invest in them or want to see for other people who are, you know, looking at companies and kind of curious about that too? So, so I think the honest answer is like what they had at, at their full seed round a few years later is what we would have wanted to see. And specifically, there were like th maybe three-ish big risks with the company. Um, and so, for example, like one risk was like, well, can you get, you know, can you process videos from YouTube and Facebook and all these major sites in like a timely manner, in a cost-effective manner? Because that's going to require a lot of like compute uh, to do something like that. So like that was one piece. Um, another piece is like, can you get the music majors on board? Which was, you know, not easy because they're notoriously like litigious or hard to work with. Um, and, you know, and honestly, like they probably don't want to work with a seed stage startup. And, and another risk might be like, you know, does the algorithm work well? Like, does it really find copies or is it, you know, works well in the demo, but not in practice? And so there are like three or four of these things stacked up. And I would say as a seed investor, usually we'll take like one big risk, maybe two. But when you have like four, it's like, okay, that's, a, you know, it's a <laughs> lot of coin flips you have to chain together in a yeah. very like lucky way. And I think, I think what was, what made us invest a couple of years later is like, well, there were these four coin flips and then like three of them went away over time. And so I was like, okay, so now there's like maybe one big risk instead of four. And like, we will, we'll take that bet, especially seeing that the founders like solved the first couple already. Yeah. And staying, staying in touch with them, obviously to be able to see that progress over time, which happens a lot with investing and in companies yeah. as well, uh, as people will find out really. 
and and with the moat side of things, you mentioned you mentioned the moat a little bit there, but I want to dive deeper into that. I know you that's a big part of your strategy at Susa Ventures too, and a lot of VCs are looking for that. But talk to me more about their moat and then how you kind of evaluate that or look for that more more broadly around what you're looking for from investing from a, a moat perspective. Yeah, so maybe I'll zoom out for a second. So moats are just sustainable competitive advantages, right? So it's something you're doing that is hard for somebody to replicate and will continue to be hard to replicate. And the reason this is important is like if you're starting out or you know you're a series A company, it's like there's probably not a long line of people trying to copy you because your business is small, you're off the radar. When you're about to go public or you're public, there's going to be a lot of people that are like, "Oh, I could do that better or cheaper or faster, like let me take a stab at it." And some of it will be startups, some of it might be like Google or whoever the Google is of your industry. And so it's important to have something that makes you hard to copy. Otherwise, there's a risk that, you know, the bigger you get, the more others will start just like eating away at your business. Um, and so so we think moats are really important. It's like it's one of the key things we focus on at the fund. Uh, with PECs, they're pretty interesting because most companies have one moat, like maybe they have network effects or they have a data set. Here, there's sort of a bunch of different ones. Um, so one is, they, like I said, they work with three different music majors. Um, there's there's like three companies that own most of the music rights in the world. And so that's a really interesting moat because those music majors, they'll have like one preferred provider to do their copyright yeah. uh, handling. And if you're the one, like it's really hard to displace that. And now you have a lock on, you know, a large part of the market. So there's kind of this moat on the distribution side. Um, there's the algorithms themselves. Like the algorithms are hard to replicate and build. Uh, and it took many years to iterate on them to make them you know, effective. And so that's something else that's like really hard to build. That one's probably a little more doable, but very difficult. Another one is, that's interesting here is like the actual data they've collected. So all of these videos they've processed on like YouTube and Facebook and all these other sites. Like if you're a startup and somebody says, hey, go crawl all of YouTube, like that's a <laughs> daunting multi-million dollar task. Yeah. And it's hard to do something. So again, like there's just all of these things that compound where even if somebody can do one of them, like maybe they have lots of resources, they can go, you know, download all the videos on YouTube. There's still all these other things they have to do in parallel. And I think that makes the company really defensible. Knowing that, you know, you kind of mentioned what, what that is, obviously, and people who aren't familiar now have a little bit more context around that. So are there other, not necessarily examples, but even just examples of more broadly of types of moats, things that you've looked for. I know I'm always thinking of our angel community at Vitalize and we're investing, you know, pre-seed out of the angel community, seed out of the fund. So it's a little bit different in terms of stage that like we match up with you in terms of the fund, but people looking at evaluating startups and you're seeing all these companies come in, in terms of moat, other types of moats or things that you look for that on that side of things, would love to hear your perspective there. Yeah. I mean, I'll give a couple, maybe a more traditional one is like economies of scale. And so what that means is whatever you're making, it just gets cheaper and cheaper per unit as you scale up. Um, so the famous example of this is like Intel with microchips, where because they make the most, like their costs are lower. And so they can go sell their microchips like 20% cheaper than anybody else. Um, so that would be like one example that's pretty common. I would say a couple I've seen um, that I haven't seen people talk about too much that I think are interesting is, so one is like a UX moat. And so we're, we're early investors in Robinhood. And in the beginning, I thought maybe data would be a moat because they're getting interesting data on what people are trading on and like how news affects people's you know perceptions and like willingness to buy or sell. But I think the moat has actually ended up being the UX. And specifically, people always talk about you know to 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 win a market from an incumbent, you have to be like ten x better, right? Well, Robinhood has a nice UX and it's free. <laughs> and like, what's ten x better than that? And it's like it's really hard to come up with something. And so I think there is an element of like, if you're, if you're really user-friendly, you have a great product and it's like at a good price, it's actually really hard to beat. So I think that can be a moat. Um, maybe another one I'll, uh, I'll call out is 
uh, for lack of a better word, I call it like a schlep moat, which is like if you're doing something really grungy that nobody wants to copy. Uh, so Twilio is a good example of that, right? Like you can go build integrations with like every phone carrier in every country, but like it's just such a pain that nobody <laughs> nobody really wants to try. They have, you know, one or two competitors, but it's, it's pretty light. Um, Yodely and Plaid are kind of in that realm where they're building like parsers for every banking website. Again, nobody wants to do that for like 10,000 banking websites. So that's like, that's a good moat in itself. One of the things I wanted to talk about, so we obviously are discussing moats and what you're looking for at this early stage as well. But even if you see that <laughs> you have all the data and you're like, oh, this is amazing. You have to get access to the deals. And we've seen these massive funds come in at the seed stage, especially with you know, 300, $400 million funds. And you guys raised a $125 million fund uh, this year. I think you announced part of a bigger raise overall of opportunity fund as well. But with that, how do you look at with this funding environment, getting access to deals in terms of what kind of your value add or your expertise is at SUSE Ventures and you know how you leverage that to get access in this kind of crazy market we're in now? It's definitely, it's this is a big question on the minds of most seed investors and honestly, most investors that, uh, that we work with. You know, I'd say there's like three big things that have worked for me personally and for the fund over the last 10 years. So I think the first one is just, you know, trying to be like a good partner, a good person, like helpful to the whoever you're talking to. Um, I think that actually goes a long way. So, so like, for example, right, uh, with PEX, like, you know, it could have passed and just never talked to Rusty again. Uh, but, you know, like we stayed friends, like I, you know, sent him like comments on his pitch deck once in a while. And because of that, there was an opportunity to invest a few years later. I think if I had just passed and never talked to him, like the chance that he would have reached out to me two years later is probably like close to zero. Yeah. Um, but we try to do this with founders, right? We're like, if we can help in some small way, we will. Um, we try to do it with investors, right? So like, if you send me an investment opportunity and we pass, like we'll send the company some feedback, but we'll share that feedback with you. A lot of times like investors like that, they're like, oh, I can see how somebody else thinks, uh, even if we're wrong, right? Like it's just fun to compare notes. So I think, I think just being like a good and helpful contributor goes a long way. Um, I'd say like being public with what you're looking for can help a lot too. Uh, and sort of the more narrow the category, the more this this has an impact, right? So if I went and tweeted like, "Hey, invest in fintech," it's like, well, never invest in fintech, right? So it's <laughs> it's not it's not it's not going to be a big differentiator. But if I'm like, oh, like I'm really excited about you know power plant software or like you know fintech applied to the chemical industry or whatever, it's going to like apply to very few companies. But for those few companies, they're like, oh my god, this is you know the only investor I've seen talking about this space that seems excited about it. So like, that's a good way to like, you know, really attract founders to talk to you in like kind of these more esoteric or niche spaces. Um, and then related to that, I would say like just focusing on more underserved markets is, you know, a good opportunity to get deal flow, right? Because the more you're willing to invest in like overlooked founders or overlooked markets or overlooked geographies, the less competition there is and the more like founders are excited to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you had kind of mentioned before as well, just around like, Knowing your, knowing your experience and you've done some writing and everything around it too, but the technical side of it and having that capabilities and bringing that to the, the venture world, how do you go about you know vetting, recruiting like technical talent and teaching the entrepreneurs around that? Because there's also in this you know battle, this war, whatever you want to call it for, for talent now, which is insane. With your expertise, like how do you go about that? Any suggestions you have for founders on that side of it too? I'd be curious to hear more about yeah, I mean, I think the, the the challenges people run into are like there's sourcing, there's vetting, and then there's winning. It's it's actually very similar to like the venture pipeline. Mm -hmm. um, on the sourcing side, you know, honestly, there's not great solutions there for seed stage companies. A lot of times, it's your network. Uh, sometimes it's like AngelList or Hacker News job postings or things or like tweets. Um, and I think that works when you're hiring, you know, an engineer every few months. 
Um, and then as you scale up, that's when people usually end up work either working with a recruiter or hiring a recruiter. Um, on the vetting side, probably the most important thing is just to get like a great technical co-founder early on, right? Because, and that's actually a really hard hire to make if you're not technical is like, how do you, how do you vet the first technical person? <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. And a lot of times it actually ends up being, you know, trying to rely on your network as much as you can, which could be a technical investor. It could be advisors. It could be engineers you've worked with in the past. We just want to get like as many technical pairs of eyes on a person uh, as possible before you hire them, especially for a role like CTO. Um, and then the winning part is increasingly hard just because the market is so competitive. Um, I think, you know, we try to help here sometimes, you know, like being technical, I can sometimes talk to candidates and try to tell them why I'm excited about like a company in general, but also maybe the technical challenges or opportunities uh, for joining. Um, but also I think, I think a big thing that people often don't do is like, they focus on, you know, competing on comp or something. That's really hard. And what you really want to do is you want to try to understand what matters to the candidate, right? Is it autonomy? Is it working on this mission? Is it something else? And then assuming that your company aligns with what they're looking for, like you really want to focus on that instead of, you know, focusing on like comp or things that might not matter that much to the person you're talking to. Yeah, it is such a crazy environment though. Just having talked to, you know, even so many founders in the last number of months and they're all going through that same type of thing and they're hungry for like figuring out how to do it better. I remember seeing yeah. on Twitter or something, someone like some founder was offering like a Bitcoin for someone who could help him hire his next person. Yep. <laughs> just like, what? Like, it's just that wild now in this environment, which is like, if you find a way to stand out, like it's amazing props to you. It's just really hard. The reality is of that. But to your point, like if as an investor, if you can somehow help your founders around that side of things too, can be helpful. And you know, there's certain, VCs are taking a different path in that, right? Some are very hands-off. Some are extremely hands-on. They provide you all that basically help on that side of things, but something for founders to think about as well. And and one thing I want to talk about though is with, with Sousa Ventures and you're there in the beginning, the evolution of this now over, over time, how has your firm built the reputation they have now and gotten access to deals and things you've done, you know, since when you guys started this to, you know, now we're talking in 2021. What do you think has kind of contributed to that the most? It's been interesting, you know, because I think when we... When we started, I think a big value prop for us, like when we talked to founders, was we were young, we were unproven, we were just like very willing to like hustle and do whatever yeah. it takes, right? And and by that, what I mean is like, you know, I would like send people 2 a.m. emails of like, hey, you wanted some website feedback, here's like a page of bullet points. I'm like, here's a typo. And then like this tab didn't work and, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I think people appreciated that. And, you know, I think that's something we try to do to this day too of, you know, like, Sort of like no task is like too trivial, right? Like we just want to help. Um, I think that goes a long way. I think what's been interesting is, you know, we have like a pitch for our value add and the places we can help. And, you know, it's it's partner experience and time and advice. There's like discount programs and things like that that we offer. We help a lot with Series A fundraising. What we found is like the thing that probably matters most is just like how you treat founders and, you know, their references for you and whether they go to bat for you. Um, and my partner, Chad, observed this a long time ago, which is like, when you think about Sequoia, like the, the brand is not, oh, they really help you with recruiting, right? The brand is like, hey, they invested in like Google and Amazon and whoever else. And like, I want to be part of that portfolio. And so I think, I think part of what's helped us too is we've been pretty lucky since the early days to work with some great companies like Robinhood and Flexport and Stored and Policy Genius and many others. And so I think what happens is, especially in those sectors, but also more broadly, when founders talk to us, they're like, oh, I'm a logistics founder. 
you guys invested in Flexport and stored. Like, I want to be part of that same group. I want to have some access to those founders. And so I think I think the portfolio getting stronger and stronger goes a long way as well. Yeah, I think that's just thinking of the the angel side as well, and think of the, you know people who are early stage investors starting to kind of angel invest as well. Like, how do you even start to improve your processes or even like your brand and in, in, in investing per se? It's like investing in companies. You have to start somewhere, so you have to yep. start investing so those can do well. So then be like, oh yeah, like that's Leo. He invests in XYZ company. Obviously, then it's more interesting than talking and having that conversation, which is what you know we're trying to help people do on the buyers angel side of things, like help people invest early, build a track record, then can get into VC or can get into more angel investing later on. But to that point, this is, it's really hard, obviously, just to get started. And we're finding a lot of people are like, how do you even begin to evaluate? What do you want you know, invest in whatever? Have you done much angel investing yourself at all? Or I'm curious about that. Yeah, I've done quite a bit. Um, I think over, you know, I started VC about nine years ago. I was actually yeah. just starting to get interested in angel investing when SUSE started, but I hadn't made any angel investments. Um, so I'd gone to a few angel meetups. I'd just like started reading about it, but I hadn't actually <laughs> pulled the trigger. And and my partners had a bit more experience in the investing side when we started. And I definitely felt sort of like insecure uh, <laughs> imposter syndrome around that. Yeah. And so my thought was, you know, I, I don't want us to write like 300K checks to like for me to like learn from my mistakes. Like, could I do this by writing a few like 10K checks every year? And so I think over the last, you know, nine, 10 years, I've probably done something like 70 angel investments and it's somewhat motivated by returns, but usually not. Usually it's more around, I really like a founder. I'm really interested in a space. I'm interested in a new business model. Like I want to, you know, learn from it. Um, and so a lot of times there's sort of like a half financial, half non-financial uh, goal. And that's yeah. been really useful because a lot of companies work out. A lot of them don't, but financially, even if it doesn't work out, I still feel like, well, I wanted to learn about X, Y, and Z. And I got to learn about that. I got to know this like great founder better. And so for me, like that's a lot of the ROI I'm looking for. Uh, so I've continued to do that, you know, basically like through through today. Yeah, we've definitely found that that same type of mix of like it's not it's angel investing is 100 percent like not only financially driven because there's just cool founders you see and you're like I want to support you and like I think you yeah. could be big, but but also like you're just dope and I like I think it'd be fun to be involved with what you're doing, which is yeah, cool and- to see that. <laughs> Yeah. And, and I think like the learning just accelerates so much because like at SUSE, you know, I do maybe like three, four investments a year. I think I've got like 25 or 30 over the last nine years, but I've done like 70 angel checks. <laughs> and so, and it's been, you know, like, so I kind of allocate a part of my salary every year because it's like, hey, this is, you know, like I've been able to like triple the number of companies I can learn from, you know, for like a fraction of my salary. Um, and, you know, and then over time, hopefully that makes me a better investor for SUSE. Yeah. And with that too, do you have a number you're targeting in terms of like your portfolio of angel investments and how many you wanted to make or anything? I know people are kind of thinking about that in our group around portfolio theory and everything, but on the angel side, have, how have you thought through that or just more so opportunistic? Um, well, I started out, so maybe like one of the biggest lessons for me, and I think this is this has changed a lot in the last few years, but when I started, everyone is saying like, okay, like, you know, minimum check size is like 25K. And I did a couple of those. And after like two or three, I was like, okay, I'm going to run out of money really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I talked to an angel friend of mine about this and they're like, oh, well, like people say 25K, but you could just offer like five or 10 and they'll take it. And I tried that a few times like, oh, this actually works, especially if you're, you know, if you're trying to be helpful beyond the cash where, um, where it's, it's not just like an accounting administrative burden on the founder, but like, you know, you're providing some value. And so I started doing a lot of like 5K and 10K checks that I could afford like a little bit more easily. Um, so that was like, that helped me actually ramp up the volume a bit more. Uh, whereas, you know, with 25K, I could do like one or two a year. 
with 10K, I could probably do like six a year or something like that. <laughs> um, so that helped a bit. I think today with like AngelList roll-up vehicles and sort of people just, you know, the popularization of angels that are like helpful in operators, I think it's easier than ever to build an angel portfolio with like, you know, checks as little as 1K sometimes, right? And so you could do like five 1K investments a year and a lot of people in the tech industry can afford that. And it's a way to, you know, get to know founders, help out companies a little bit, but also maybe like figure out if you're good at, you know, picking or not. Yeah, and get those logos. I mean, you could say that these are companies you invested in and you can actually see it, which is, yeah, what we're doing in Vitalize, 1K minimum checks. Yeah, and and from a portfolio theory perspective, I would say like you probably want to target kind of 20-ish investments plus over, you know, three, four years. You don't want it to all be in one year because like, first of all, there's no feedback loop there if you suck. Uh, <laughs> yep. But also like startup investments are all about the vintage year. So, you know, it, like if you invested in like 2000, that was a terrible year. If you invested in 98, that was an amazing year. And so you kind of want to spread your investments out so you're not taking on too much time risk. Um, and you also want it to be kind of 20 or 30 or more so that you're not taking too much concentration risk because like venture outcomes are so so skewed and so power law. Yeah, I know we're almost uh, out of time here, but I have a couple of questions. One thing around with the angel side of it, what do you think about founders? You know, you're seeing a lot more founders, operators, angel investing, starting to get into investing. You know, ones that are maybe in your portfolio or other ones you've seen, like what are your thoughts around that? Do you like, time to split like it can be quick though but like how do you think about that side of things honestly i think it's great uh and i i find it surprising that you know sometimes like people knock on it on twitter or other places where like they, they see it as a distraction but I, I don't think it's a distraction at all you know part of it's like like if you had a hobby of tennis i wouldn't be like stop playing tennis and build your startup <laughs> and yeah. so like if you're spending that tennis time on like investing or something else like you know who am i to say like don't do that but, but I also, so I think part of it's like, you know, you should be able to do whatever you want to do as long as it's, you know, as long as you're not spending like 80 hours a week on it and then you're not building your company. Um, but the other part is also, I think there are like a lot of, um, I hate this word, but like synergies with startup investing because you get to learn a lot about other business models and how other founders do things. And, you know, you help them out, but sometimes you can ask them to help you out. Um, and also sometimes like maybe they need a soft landing. Maybe you need a soft landing. So there's just like all these great opportunities and like biz dev and corp dev and learning and you know, all the, like knowledge sharing um, that I think are great when you're angel investing. And so if it's, you know, if it's a reasonable time commitment, like you spend a few hours a month on it or even a few hours a week, like I think that's fantastic. Yeah, I'm glad, glad about that up because it is a matter of like, it doesn't have to take full-time job to do yeah. it. You've seen these companies come in, you can evaluate them, make up your mind and go. It doesn't have to be a hugely commitment thing. I mean, it can only, can be evaluated in many ways to see these different companies and evaluate and have that relationship as well as uh, I see it as a big plus for a lot of people. And as we kind of for wrap sure. things up here, just want to know, what are you most excited about in the kind of startup VC world? You see a lot of companies, you've been around for a number of years with SUSE. Uh, what are you most excited for now, Leah? Less of a sector and more just like some of the structural changes in VC. Uh, I think, first of all, Angelus has been putting out a lot of killer products like roll up vehicles are great, for example. It's a yep. way to collect a bunch of smaller angel checks into like one entry on your cap table. It's less administrative burden, but also you get help from a lot more people. So I think that's like great for both for angels and for founders and for VCs who are like part of these rounds. Um, another like kind of structural change I'm really excited about probably even more is uh, the introduction of like more and more debt financing and revenue based financing. because. Like even like five years ago, it used to be kind of frustrating because you'd see these companies where, you know, there is a seed round, they're growing. And if they're going like 3x, they could go raise a series A. If they're going like 1.9x a year, well, now they're like screwed because it's not venture scale, like venture speed growth, but it's a good solid business. But now there's like no funding resources. And so maybe they try to get acquired. 
Um, and now you have like revenue-based financing where, you know, let's say you're at 500K in revenue, somebody will give you a loan for like 250K, an interest rate and very minimal dilution or no dilution. And so I think it's just great because it'll help a lot of companies, you know, either get back on the venture track if that's what they want to do or just scale up a lot further before, you know, they, they look for exit options or maybe become self-sustaining. So I think that's like a really awesome development. Yeah, it is interesting to see how people be more creative with that. I think I even saw recently on like the venture side, people doing that for uh, fund managers because a lot of emerging managers, these are a lot smaller funds. If you look at the numbers behind it, managing fee is very small when you compare it to a much bigger fund and like getting that ahead of time and quicker is interesting to be able to do some different things around it. And like, I just, I think I saw something on Twitter and I sent it to Gail at our firm. It's like, this is just interesting. Just, just a heads up, like to say that, but it's cool to see people kind of doing these new models and venture and finding different ways in terms of startups that, you know, founders should realize like there's way more than just VC dollars. There's much other options out there that are, people are trying to innovate on, which is kind of fun to be a part of and to see in the industry at least. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like, I, I think that I saw the product you're talking about. I think it's probably pipe where like a, a yeah. VC manager can get some of their fees paid up front more. And like, we definitely like, I wish we had that when we started SUSE because <laughs> It was a $25 million fund. We had 500K a year in fees, but there were four partners. There's travel costs and legal costs and legal office costs, costs and all yeah. this stuff. And it's like, you, you actually like, it was a pretty, I think we went no salary for a year and then low salary for a few years. And um, I wish we could have, you know, taken a little bit of that up front to like, to help offset the costs a little bit. Yeah. And put some more things in place to be able to help run the firm and everything, you know, as you, especially in the early days, we're trying to figure things out. I think that'd be super helpful. So like, yeah, what Pipe is doing is, intriguing and that yeah yeah there's been a lot of things that are intriguing i'm watching now let's just say <laughs> yeah that's really cool yeah and i know we're out, we're out of time here but uh where is the best place for people to connect with you see what you're you're up to online and also look at uh, susa ventures sure uh so i'm i'm on twitter too much uh, my handle is lpolovets l p o l o v e t s and then my email is leo at susaventures.com um so those are both good ways to to chat with me Perfect. Well, Leo, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. Thanks, Justin. It was a lot of fun. Hey, thanks for listening. If you want to learn more about us, head on over to vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at vitalizevc, or you can follow me on Twitter at justingordon212. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.